Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal Series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation point, the Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, the Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, the Wise Woman Way, down there, sexual and reproductive health, the wise woman way. And abundantly well, seven medicines, the wise woman way. The newest book in the wise woman herbal series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Knees, a Cancer Diagnosis, Adaptogens for Long Life, and Abundantly Well Companion Course, Wise Woman You can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Catherine. Hello, Susan. How are you doing this evening? How's it doing up there in Alaska? 
It's wonderful. I tell you, I'm seeing more ground every day under the snow. All right. Coming Yay. up. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> and how are you in the beautiful Catskill Mountains at the Laughing Rock Farm? At Laughing Rock Farm, the daffodils are blooming, and the bloodroot is blooming, and the dandelions are blooming, and the violets are blooming, and the glaucoma heteraceae (laughs) is blooming. So we are well. (laughs) Yeah, well, I spent the afternoon harvesting nettle. I got a pound and a half of tender nettle tops. Ooh. Ooh. Yes. Uh, we made nettle soup this weekend, can I ask too. You, and do you ever cook, like, with your nettle? Yeah, sure you cook Sorry. with nettle. We okay. made nettle soup yeah. this weekend. We had, we did some work here this weekend. And, um, and we worked together, six feet apart, but we worked together, harvesting nettle, because I have a lot of yeah. nettle. Yeah. And we harvested about a pound of nettle. I like to put one ounce of nettle for every two cups of water. So okay. 16 ounces of a nettle is a pound, so that's 32 cups of water. That's a gallon of nettle soup. I bring the water to a boil, Indeed. drop the nettle into the boiling water, because remember that nettle is a fiber plant. Mm-hmm. You want the water boiling, and then when you drop the nettle in there, it helps it break the, helps to break the cell wall. Whereas if you put the nettle in cold water and bring it up to a boil, it tightens the cell wall, and it's harder for nutrients to get out. Oh, gosh, Okay. Everybody re-listen. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful at the mentor site, um, I think week before last at the mentor site, um, I did seven or eight videos, uh, nettle soup from the ground to your bowl. Okay. So that's the So anybody site. who is connected into the mentor site can go there. there I think go. Justine has posted those videos at this point. And then this week for the mentor site, I did a triple goddess of vinegar. Yay. Right, cronewort, motherwort, and maidenwort. So doing doing my best to put some more information there on the mentor site. Um, Thank since you we're all, for that. We're all staying home more and uh, looking at our devices more. And what I really want you to do is to get <laughs> outside. So we made a gallon of nettle soup, and we and I you know called it nettle soup plain. The only thing I put in it was astragalus. And in that gallon, I put wow. maybe two ounces of, of cut astragalus root and cooked it up and reminded people not wow. to eat the astragalus. We served it with miso. And then Sunday, we went out to the patch of wild leeks, the ramps, and we harvested mm. a bunch of that. And Saturday night, I had soaked shiitake mushrooms and then cooked them. And I put the cooked shiitake, and then I cooked the ramps in some um, organic bacon fat. And then added the shiitake and the ramps and a little dark sesame oil to the nettle soup. So that we had nettle soup twice, but it felt like we had a totally different dish. That sounds beautiful. You can use herbs with the food as well as the infusions and the tinctures. And this is a wonderful thing. It is indeed. Well, right now my nettle is very small. I actually wait until it's about knee high before I harvest it to dry for infusion. Remember, we can only use dried herb in infusion. Again, the cell wall of the plant has to be broken. So we, the first thing that we did was harvest that nettle, right? Everybody, you know, got a freshly washed pair of scissors and went to their spot and started cutting nettle. 
And that was after we did a virtual talking stick where we did not hold hands and we did not pass the stick except virtually, and we looked at each other. And um, so we got started cutting nettle, I guess, at about 1030. And I was putting it in the boiling water, which I, of course, had already put up to boil before I came out for a talking stick, um, at about 11. And that cooked until we ate lunch at 2. Wow. You cannot, you can't cook it too long. And it's still never going to get that dark, rich aroma and body that you get from the dried nettle because you just can't get as much out of raw food, even raw food that's been cooked, as you can dried food that's been cooked. Yes. I have the leftover nettle from the infusion. So I think to myself, well, maybe I should cook this with some eggs and a quiche. And I no, did, there's and nothing left tasty. than that. No, it's nothing. Nothing left? Okay. Nothing left there. <laughs> Very no. good. Put it yeah, in your fresh. compost. We want to cook the fresh. Right. You we want to cook, cook with fresh the fresh, or, or make infusion with Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, so if I'm out teaching and I'm at somebody's house, a guest at somebody's house, and I often take infusion herb with me, already measured out in one ounce amount. So all I need is the jar and the boiling water, which most people can provide. Uh, then when I strain that infusion, I take those, the mast, the, the nettle leaves from it, and I put it in the, the potted plants. And usually within a month of leaving there, I get some kind of communication from those people going, what did you do to our houseplants? I've never seen them so beautiful. They're uh, flowering. So is, yeah. put it in your compost. It's great for your compost. If you don't have a compost pile, throw it on your lawn. Scatter it. Don't make big lumps like a mole. Scatter it out. And if you don't even have a lawn, put it in your potted plants. And if you don't have potted plants, this is a good time to go and buy some. There you go. Well, up here go. it's a challenge with the um, with the compost because it's cold, it's very cold. So you don't want a huge frozen mass. So feeding it to your plants, or maybe chickens. What wait, do you wait, think wait, about wait. feeding it to my my compost freezes in the winter? It does. So you just let it thaw and and work with it in spring, Susan. Is that what you do? Well, actually, I'm a very lazy composter. Yes. So what I do is I make a big compost pile. We're talking about a compost pile that's about three to five feet wide and eight to ten feet long. So this is stuff from my goat barn, stuff from the rabbits, and I make that big compost pile. And it's not heaped up like a haystack. A haystack is heaped up because it keeps the water out. It's dished like a soup bowl. So it's higher on the uh-huh. edges and lower in the middle, so it attracts rain into it. And I have red worms, and I throw those red worms in there. I then bury my kitchen leavings, the stuff I don't feed to the rabbits, in that compost pile for the next six months. And in the winter time, that is working hard enough that I can usually... Even when it's well below zero, bury my my kitchen leavings there. Now, I have a five-gallon bucket of my kitchen leavings, so I don't have to do this every day or every week. And I can choose a warmer, sunnier day. So I'm burying my kitchen leavings maybe once a month. 
Okay, this then is six months later, I start, a, I start a new pile. Okay. And then six That's months right. later, I start a new pile. So I have three piles. In six. I thought At the beginning of the second correct. year, the first one is compost and is ready to go on the gardens. Notice I have not turned it, touched it, or done anything to it. I made the compost pile. I buried my kitchen scraps in it. That's it. The worms do the rest. So now, no granted, I have champion, right champion material to make compost with, Right. Goat leavings and rabbit yes. leavings are the best, far superior mm -hmm. to cow or chicken or goose. You know, llama's good, sheep is good, but they're a little more, a little hotter. Yeah. So, you, so for most people, I say, you know, you're wanting to make compost, keep some rabbits. They're easy to keep. Even most cities will allow you to keep rabbits. And your compost pile, of course, doesn't have to be as big as mine. But by making it so big, the worms don't freeze. And I've had temperatures here cold enough to break the water mains in the nearby town, which are buried four feet deep. The Catskills can get cold. Yeah, it's wild country. It gets very cold where you are. And I know that your advice about the cold applies to me. Yeah. Interestingly enough, Susan, we do yeah. have worms in Alaska. They're very deep. And they do they are here. They're regional worms. And this is a Won't fun work. study. Won't work in your compost. It has to be reds, Chinese reds. Gotcha. Okay. I will These reds compost worm because they stay home. Ah. Right? You put them in your compost, Very they will be there forever. You get worms <laughs> You get worms from the forest, they're going back to the forest. They don't want to hang out in your compost. There was a woman who popularized the Chinese reds with a book called Worms Eat My Garbage. And well, I'll get some. And yes, they're very special worm. So they, they are my Thank boon you. companions. Tonight, we are going to get to talk to Lisa Butcher. How exciting. I've been reading her book. Her book is called Raising the Bottom. Now, I'm just going to let you imagine for a moment what on earth this book is about, right? It could be, um, it could be about dancers who want to raise their bottoms, huh? It could be about people building ponds who want to raise their bottoms. <laughs> But in fact, what it's about is alcoholism. And it's often said in Alcoholics Anonymous that the person will not stop drinking until they hit bottom. And so the idea of raising the bottom is let's not have the bottom be so far down. Let's acknowledge what we're doing. But I'm going to let Lisa talk about it. It's her fifth book. And she has been working with hundreds of women to overcome alcoholism for three decades. So I know she has a lot of fascinating things to say about it. And I'm very interested to talk to Lisa Butcher tonight at 9. That's an hour and about 15 minutes from now, wherever you are. Stay with us or come back.
And do we have any callers with questions tonight? We do. We have callers, and I'm looking forward to Lisa as well. Um, if you have a question for Susan, please press 1, and you can get in the queue. We have a 908 area code. Hello, 908. Hi. Hi, Susan. It's Dorothy from New Jersey. Hi, Dorothy. Hi. Um, I did make sauerkraut, and I had all sorts of exciting events with it. First, it, I, don't, I didn't leave any space at the top, so that may have been possibly my jar was too full. But my, the water in it, the liquid in it kind of came out, not you know, all of it, but a bunch of it. So then I put it in a... So we're talking about making corn so confusion. No, sauerkraut. Sauerkraut. Oh, you made sauerkraut. I'm sorry. Okay. I made sauerkraut. You made sauerkraut. Yes. And you didn't sauerkraut. leave any space at the top. Didn't so as it began space. to ferment, which means it's producing gas, yes. it pushed itself through the lid. The liquid, yes. yes. The liquid did. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so long as but, you didn't you know, open the lid, you're fine. Yeah. I, I, well, I, I cleaned it up. and I. I what uh, do you mean you cleaned I, it up? I mean, I cleaned up the liquid, which was quite profuse. Uh, uh, all around I, it, right? Yeah, but I had put it inside of a cupboard, and then it kind of went in there, and then it kind of came oh, out. Oh, dear, you never want to do that. <laughs> yeah, so this is how we learn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Somebody invited yes. me to her house with the apprentices. She said, please bring the apprentices. I want to show them that when you say things, you're quite serious. You always say about the oils that when you're making an oil, be sure to put it in a dish because someone's going to bubble out. She said, and I didn't, and my husband built me these great shelves for my oils, and it was right behind my cooking stove, and they bubbled out so much that we actually had to tear down one of the major walls of the house and replace it because it was a fire hazard. Oh, oh, dear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. luckily. Luckily, this was that. not a fire hazard. Mine was clean upable. Good. And then I put it in a, you know, in a ceramic pan that had sides in case it did it more okay um, it didn't it well it did but then uh so then it sat for a couple of days and then i remembered that you had said something about turning it over every now and then so then i turned it over i usually turn then, it over twice a day for the first three days and then i refrigerate it yes yes so this was probably the Third day, I remembered to turn it over. So I turned it over in the early part of the day, and then I went back the late part of the day, and more of the liquid had seeped out. So then I thought, So when I right, say well, turn it over, what I mean is I take it, I turn it over, and then I put it right side up. I don't leave it upside down. Oh, yes. Okay, well, thank you. That's helpful. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, after three days, I put it in the fridge. Good. Good and one. then uh, that was like, oh, thank you. Yes, it was pretty exciting. And also exciting was that my daughter had a cabbage. She's in Washington right now. So um, she had a cabbage, and she happened to call me when I was making it. She said, oh, I'm going to make mine too. So she also made sauerkraut at the same time. Oh, what and, fun. Um, I know. It was very, very fun. So anyway, I refrigerated it, and now it, today it was a week 
And so I opened it, and uh, it it seems okay. It's just very, very dry. I mean, I can't actually locate any liquid in it yeah, you didn't, anymore. You didn't push it enough. Okay. Well, so does that – should I try to do anything about that, or what? what is – so when I make sauerkraut, I cut the cabbage fairly finely, yeah. and I put it into a jar, and I use my fist to push it into the jar. Yes. I put like maybe a couple of inches and then some salt and then a couple of more inches, and I push it into the jar. Mm-hmm. And a little salt and another couple of inches and push it and push it and push it until the jar is full of liquid. Mm-hmm. I don't until the jar is full of liquid. Then I add three tablespoons of whey. Oh, then you add the whey. Okay, so when it's like up to the top, but not up to the very top. Yes, exactly. That's why the jars yeah. have a shoulder, right? You just mm-hmm. fill it not wide up to the to the rim. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty critical right there at the beginning part of it. Um, to really lean into it. People who don't feel that they are strong enough to do that um, buy like a wooden pounder that they can pound it with. Mm -hmm. So there's probably nothing wrong with the sauerkraut you made. And my suggestion would be... would be to eat it, not to try to preserve it. Right. So don't don't uh, don't delay. Just eat it up. Just go ahead and eat it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems a little bit fermented, and it doesn't taste bad. Like it doesn't have a an mm-hmm. off taste or anything. Is the is there a color change and a texture change? No, not really. Well, Maybe then you a have not. Bit made, of a color you haven't really made a little bit of a texture. What's that? Then you haven't really made sauerkraut. Yeah. Because when you make sauerkraut, there is a distinct and noticeable texture and color change. It okay. looks like it's been cooked almost. Yeah. No, it, it did not achieve that level of right. and that, sauerkraut. That's through the pushing and the pounding that does that, right? Okay. No. All right. Well, I did everything right, I think, except for I think losing all the liquid didn't didn't help it. Needed that. Yes, it did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, abs- all right. it absolutely did. And so what you're saying is that you put sauerkraut in the jar right up to the rim of the jar so that when you put the lid on mm-hmm. it, there was no place for any fermentation to happen. Right. Exactly. And but so what happened was that the liquid that the sauerkraut needed um, spilled out. Yes. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank yeah. you. Thank you. It You're was welcome. Fun and... Uh, yeah, I think my daughter's came out actually a lot better than mine did. So, hey, you know, next time. It's all learning how wonderful. Yes, and I, I love doing it. So I'll, I'll look forward to next time. Goody. Green blessings. Thank Thanks for your Thank call. You too. Mm-hmm.
even look at them sometimes, and I have no idea where this fear came from, and I was just wondering if there's anything that I could do, any meditation that I could do to help me get over this. Mm. Well, the first thing that I would think is to stop doing a monthly breast exam. Okay. I think that's really kind of stressing you out. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure um, if it's worthwhile given mm-hmm. that stress. What you can do is ask your guardians and your guides to alert you if at any point you should examine your breath. You know what's funny? I read in your book, I have all your books. I just ordered the um, Abundantly Well. They're, the other books are in a box. We're moving. And I asked my guides and my guardians to alert me if there was something wrong with me. And this is before my cancer diagnosis. And the liminal space between sleeping and waking, a man's voice would tell me, you have cancer. And it happened until after, until I had the surgery. I haven't heard that voice since. So, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely do that. Right. So then you don't have to be like every month going, is there cancer here? Is there cancer here? Is there cancer here? Right? Right. Right. You mm-hmm. know that you have that voice. You know that that guardian is there. <clears throat> and you can trust it to alert yeah. you if you need an alert, as it has, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I will do that. I think that this, in my experience, it is not uncommon when someone has been diagnosed with cancer for them to kind of look over their shoulder to see where the, the, the next cancer might be. Exactly. But I don't think that, um, that the fact that you were diagnosed with one kind of cancer means that you are predisposed to other kinds of cancer. Exactly. It's just a mind mess up, the whole thing. I wasn't expecting. I was asymptomatic, and it was only found by chance. Only I have found no by. idea. It was found by. It was found by chance by by a neurologist because I had messed up my my neck, and oh they wanted God. to see if I had any nerve nerve damage. And they touched my thyroid, and they're like, mm, "Something's not right." Oh wow! And it was only when I would tip my head back that the nodule popped out. Yes. Got it. Well, of course, I personally don't think that that was chance at all. I think, again, that that was your guides. Yes. Yes. And it would, the voice would get louder and louder and louder and louder. Mm-hmm. 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 Until you did Thank something you about so it. Thank you so much. Yeah. You, you are 
so welcome. And, of course, you know, you can do all of the obvious things. You can set up, um, you know, a little sacred space um, for your breasts and tell your breasts that you love them and that you trust them. Mm-hmm. Because it kind of sounds like you think your breasts are going to betray you. I don't want that. Yeah, I'm just, it's just if I had the one gland in my body that controls everything betray me. But it and I realize that I have no control. Not betray you. It responded to uh, things that we don't know about. It does. Your body cannot betray you. That's not in its game plan. This is very true. This is very true. And you're not the only one who thinks that. That's a very common thing to think. Oh my goodness, I have cancer. My body has betrayed me. But. It's just really not possible for our bodies to betray us because they are us, right? That's true. I was teaching weekly classes, and a woman kept complaining about something going on with her foot. And finally, you know, I asked her what's going on with her foot, and it turned out that she had an infection in the bone in her foot. which I had never even heard of before. And as we got to talking about it, this is the kind of thing she was saying. She said, oh, well, this foot that and this foot the other thing. And finally I looked at her and I said, you know what? It's not a this foot or a that foot. It's your foot. And you can't, like, fire it and go get a different one. <laughs> you have to learn to, to love it. And her doctor said that she narrowly avoided having to have her foot amputated. So I was very glad that that um, she n- noticed what was going on and was able to take some effective action to bring herself back into um, loving her foot. One of the reasons that she didn't love her foot was because it was um, there were some major problems with it that had been there basically for a long time. And um, so it was, it was pretty complicated what had been going on with her about her foot and very interesting to see um, how she brought that back into the space of love. Okay. Yeah. So I Thank think you. when you, <laughs> yeah, bring this gland that didn't betray you back into the space of love, that it will be easier to love all the rest of you too. I'm moved beyond words. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Green blessings. Green blessings. The next caller is 410. Hello. Hi, 410. Tonight. Wonderful to talk to you again. So Hmm. I have an issue here going on recently. Um, About two weeks ago, 
I had some trouble walking. And last week, it just got worse. People were saying, oh, cause because of COVID, I've been sitting at my computer. But usually I sit at the computer for long hours um, with an at-home business. So everyone is saying, oh, it's probably um, circulation. Don't sit there too long. So I started taking, you know, increments of walks and different things. It didn't subside. I called my doctor. I told him, hey, I'm kind of worried because my foot, it, it's not swollen. But every morning I wake up, my foot is just tired. Like like you walked a mile already before you woke up. Um, mm. And it's just stiff and heavy. And then I couldn't lay on my side, like my right hip. Every time I lay on it, it's just feeling like something is hurting so bad I have to move. Um, oh. So anyway, I just, everyone is telling me, take some exercise. Go and move around, do some exercise. So I did. And apparently I made it worse. <laughs> So last week, Wednesday, I made it worse that I, I just couldn't walk. I was limping. I couldn't put pressure on my right leg. So I was like, no, this is not normal. So I went to get an x-ray, and they saw that there was some um, calcium deposit on the side of my hip bone, that joint right there, where I was getting the pain when I lay on it. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So that's what he saw in the the x-ray. I am not one for medication. I am a budding herbalist. So I have a closet full of herbs. And I have most of your books. I haven't conquered all yet. And I would just say, hey, I am going to log on to my master herbalist tonight and hear what she has to say. Hopefully I get to speak. (laughs) And here I am. (laughs) And here we are. You know, when you are the master of something, you have mastery. But when you're the mistress of something, you have Mystery. Oh, so you're the mistress. So I prefer to be an herbal mistress rather than an herbal master. I love it. Correct. Mm-hmm. The mistress. <laughs> my mis- my herbal uh, mistress. Yes. The mystery, <laughs> the magic and mystery of the plants. Yes, how absolutely, absolutely marvelous. So when you say that you took some exercise and it made it worse. Could you tell me a little bit more about, did you go out for a walk? Did you go out for a run? Did you uh, go to the gym and get on the treadmill? What did you actually do? So I just, seeing that it was my hip where I was the pain, I just did kind of like some hip exercises. You know that, I'm from the islands. I think I told you that before. So where's this song, and we're, we were British then, and there's this call, song called Girl, Show Me Your Motion. And you just move your hip from side to side. And I just did something, like move up my legs and just r- range of motion exercises and little climb on my tippy toes, little stuff, I, because I'm in Maryland and we can't go out. So, um, yeah, it's just little things to just get my you, blood. Well, excuse circulating. me, you cannot leave your house? Well, I I choose not to leave in the time, in the season we're in, unless I really have to. You cannot, I see, I see maybe 10 times more people bicycling, walking, running my roads. I oh, love it. Yeah, things like that. I have a backyard. We go out in the back. We could go in the trails. I do, I do outdoors, yeah. But I'm saying go out, um, like, to the gym. The gyms are closed. Closed? You can't go to the yeah. gym. There is no gym to go to. So I'm uncertain as to whether or not the exercise that you did um, 
was structurally good for that area. Mm-hmm. I ad- freely admit to being very much a fan of walking. Right. And more and more research is showing that it does not even really matter how fast you walk. What's important is that you walk. We are, Our right. bodies are meant and designed mm-hmm. to be moving as walking. It is, in fact, the primary reason that we're all so interested in butts is because they tell you how strong a person can walk and run, right? Right. Right? So what we know is that when there is problems in the joints, Mm -hmm. milder exercise like walking is far better than exercise like dancing or running, which puts too much stress on the joints. And that, of course, one of the very best things of all is Qigong or Tai Chi. Okay, I do have a Qigong um, video. Okay. Yeah, that's that's what I would like to see you try out and see how that works for you. Okay. All right? All right, wonderful. Okie dokie. And, of course, anytime there's any joint problems, I'm always thinking comfrey infusion. Yeah, well, I started drinking some comfrey. I, I had the roots only, so I drank some of that before I, I even went to the If you doctor. never repeat that, that's a very bad idea. The comfrey root? Please never ingest comfrey root. Mm. Quite dangerous. Okay. There are people who have taken me to task for popularizing comfrey for that very reason. They say, you know, you can't, you, you can't expect people to really understand that comfrey root is poisonous and comfrey leaf can be used. If you tell them they can use comfrey leaf, then they're just going to go and use the root and poison themselves. Right. Okay. So please do not do that ever again, okay? Now, so I'll, I'll pick a few leaves. That's pointless. What do you mean you'll pick a few leaves? You can't make an infusion by picking a few leaves. And put it to dry to prepare myself for when it's ready. You can't order a pound of comfrey leaf? I do have some. You need one ounce of dried comfrey leaves. A few comfrey leaves, it'll take you a year before you even get an ounce. I do have some from my garden last year. Okay. Um, and and they're coming back up. So every year it comes back up. Okay. And you have some that are, you dried last year? My dad had some in Florida also, so we swap. He dries it and sends it for me. So I do have a batch that I can use. Exactly. That's already dried. Already dried. Wonderful. That has to be yeah. cut up before it can be made into infusion. Yes. And I usually cut it into pieces between an inch and an inch and a half. Right. And then weigh out one ounce. It's critically important to use a scale and weigh out one ounce. Okay. One ounce. To one ounce by ounce. weight. Okay. It's a lot of comfrey. Okay. It's not a few leaves. Right. Right? Okay. That's how we are getting the effect that we want from it. Okay. 
right? For instance, a cup of nettle tea made of a few leaves of nettle contains mm-hmm. about, about five milligrams of calcium. Okay. Whereas a cup of nettle infusion made from one ounce of dried nettle in a quart of water contains 250 milligrams of calcium. Mm. My my experience of herbs, my understanding of herbs, everything about herbs completely <laughs> for me when I started making infusions. The teas that I had been using were lovely, but they really weren't doing very much. Okay. When I actually started weighing out the herb and really making infusions, that's when I saw herbs really working. Mm. Got you. Okay. Okay. I'm using one ounce of comfrey leaves to how much water? One quart of boiling water. One quart of boiling water. Okay. All righty. Thank you so kindly. Green blessings. Green blessings. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hi, Susan. Hello. I love you. Thank you so much. Oh, for thank you. How wonderful. I um, have my mom on the phone who is very new to herbs, and she has a question. Okay, go ahead, mom. Hi, uh, Susan. I was calling to uh, first, uh, I hope you're doing well. Thank you. I am, and you too. Thank you. I uh, wanted to uh, get your. Um, uh, uh, suggestions or recommendations for um, the value of, um, I guess, herbal um, hormone supplements or hormone um, replacement as opposed to the medicinal uh, brand? Well, if you will allow me, I'd like to talk about hormones a little bit. Um, because most women especially have very little good information about their hormones. They think that um, they stop making estrogen after menopause, which is completely untrue. Human women make 30 different kinds of estrogen. And we start making estrogen before we're born. Girl children are making 29 kinds of estrogen while they are in utero. The 30th estrogen is not made until we reach puberty, stradiol. And when we reach puberty, we start making a stradiol. And when we come to menopause, we stop making a stradiol. And it's a kind of estrogen, but it's only one out of 30 estrogens that your body makes. I'm 74. I'm not lacking any estrogen. I have as much estrogen as I ever had. Estradiol is only made for about 36 hours out of the month. It's very dangerous hormone, so we can't afford to make very much of it or make it very often. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that women live long is because they stop making estradiol, because we have menopause, which confers longevity on us. 
So it's rather against nature to start taking hormones, isn't it? Hmm. From that standpoint, yeah. It's basically saying to your body, you don't know what you're doing. You've made a mistake, and I'm going to correct it. But your body has not made a mistake. Your body's extremely intelligent. And it says, okay, you're getting too old for this estradiol, which really feeds breast cancer. We're just going to stop making it. Hmm. I have taught class after class and ask in big classes, classes of 50, 60, 70 women, is there anybody here who's postmenopause? If so, would you please stand up? And then with those women standing, I say, if there's anyone who's taking hormones, please sit down. And there's always one or two women who sit down. And then I say, okay, if everybody left standing, you're not taking hormones. Anybody who feels that you are missing any hormones, please sit down. No one sits down. Occasionally you have a woman who stands on her chair and goes, it's better than ever. What are you missing? Hmm. Well, I guess from that, how would you wean yourself from from um, um, the medicine? I just stopped taking it. You don't have to wean yourself. Just stop. It's not doing anything necessary for your health or your body. It's a bad idea pushed on women by men who like us to be fertile and sexually receptive. Remember that estradiol, that one that we start making at puberty and stop making at menopause, that's the one that causes ovulation. So it's the driver of fertility, and for many women it's the driver of their sexuality. No reason of any kind that any woman, as post as postmenopausal woman, needs to take any kind of hormones. She already has plenty of hormones. Now that Susan, I have a question. that said, to keep your hormones healthy, you want to eat good quality fats. You want to make sure you're getting enough fish in your diet. Omega three fatty acids. We want to make sure that you're eating leafy greens and that those leafy greens are well cooked. I cook my spinach for an hour. I cook my kale for two or three hours. So it's better to have it cooked rather than raw? There's absolutely no food value in any raw food, and nothing on this planet eats raw food. People say, wait, don't your goats eat raw food? I say, you know, you watch the goats. We're here with the goats. You watch the goats. What are they doing right now? And they say, well, they're eating. I say, well, check it out. And what are they actually doing? And they say, well, they're taking a bite of grass. I said, and are they chewing it? They said, golly, no, they're just swallowing it. I said, that's right. They're not going to waste the calories to chew raw food because they can't get anything from it. It goes down into their F-O-R-E stomach. They don't have F-O-U-R stomachs. They have one F-O-R-E stomach, a four stomach, also called the rumen. And in the rumen, they turn everything they've eaten into sauerkraut. It ferments. It heats up. It's cooked. And then... 
They cough it up, and they chew their cud. They only chew their food after it's been cooked. Ruminants, very successful way to get along. Buffalo are ruminants. Big animals, moose are ruminants, sheep, goats, cows, antelope, gazelles, reindeer. Ruminants, they cook their food. And people say to me, well, what about, what about the rabbits? Aren't the rabbits eating raw food? I said, well, if you really want to go there, I'll explain to you that rabbits are caprophages. And if you buy a pet rabbit at the store, they will tell you, don't feed your rabbit any raw food. You'll kill it. Because, again, no animal eats raw food. There's no nutrition of any kind in raw food. Only a few crazy human beings eat raw food. It's not good for us. And your ancestors certainly didn't because they needed to get the calories and the nutrients out of their food. They couldn't afford to throw their food away by eating it raw. No Native American ate raw berries. They pounded them with meat and made pemmican. They dried them. They waited until they were frozen, and then they harvested them. You just don't eat raw food. Susan, I have a question about the um, estradiol. I have an aunt who had a hysterectomy that's currently on that. A hysterectomy means the removal of the uterus. You're right. So I think she had an ophorectomy as well as a hysterectomy. I think she let them steal her ovaries. I think she let them castrate her. So what does that mean about the ability for the body to create um, estrogen? You create estrogen from every fat cell in your body. It doesn't have to do with your ovaries. Oh, One of my best yoga teachers was a woman who had her ovaries and her uterus removed in her 30s, never took hormones, and was strong, healthy, and flexible in her 70s. Hmm. Again, men want you to believe that you have to take these hormones. It's just not true. Hmm. That's good to know. But you do have to drink your nourishing herbal infusions. And eat a good diet. You can't eat a raw food diet. You can't eat a vegan diet. Most vegetarian diets are not going to be good enough either. Okay, great. Mom, did you have to say anything else? I appreciate your insight. Thank you so much. You are welcome. Thanks for your call. Green Green blessings. Mm-hmm. Hello, I'm here. Hi. <laughs> four four three is our next caller. Hi, Susan. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call today. Um, my topic is teeth, and I'm I I have a lot to share, so I'm going to try to be really organized in how I share it and. Feel free to interrupt me because I just tend to lose track. But um, it's basically four related items uh, regarding teeth that I want to get your, would love to get your wisdom on. So one is root canals versus extraction. And then the options for teeth replacement, in particular um, implants. 
And then gum health, I have some issues with that, and I'll um, talk more about that in a, in a moment. Uh, systemic infections, and finally joint pains um, that are occurring, started to occur only on the side that I have my two uh, root canals. Everything just happens on that left side. So let me give you some facts. I'm 46. I drink infusions on a daily. I have for the past two years. It's changed my life. Um, my two uh, canaled teeth um, are both on the same side, uh, left side of my mouth, upper and lower jaw, tooth 19 and 14. Um, I have all my wisdom teeth, um, so my mouth is very crowded. Um, so that's something that's going to come up later. Uh, have gum issues, um, history of infections, mostly UTIs. And finally, I have um, a background belief around teeth health, okay? My mom had issues throughout her life with teeth, just very um, ongoing, um, a lot of money spent in her mouth, so she drilled in our heads, you know, uh, teeth health, hygiene, and keep your teeth at all costs. You do not want to start extracting, so root canals are the way, and you keep your teeth for a long, as long as you can. And also there's an aesthetic component that she's all about. You know, uh, you want to have a beautiful smile, that kind of thing. So um, that background is really strong with me to this day. Um, so I recently, as of last year, I'm going to get into the root canal, Last year, July of last year, I went, I started to feel some throbbing on my, the root 19, the canal tooth. And there was no pattern to this. The throbbing started, it would come strong at times and stop. Sometimes it would come with um, almost like an itch on my gum around the tooth. So I, I, I had to try to scratch with my nail and, and it would alleviate the, the itch. It was really weird. Um, I went to the dentist and he did a panoramic x-ray and he came back and said, you're right on the money. There's a little, the beginning of an abscess right at the very beginning of the root. Um, and because for the past decade or so, I've been going to biological dentists, um, I'm sure you're familiar with them, um, they do not believe in root canals. It's extraction. You do not want the possibility of an infection in that tooth and, and um, systemic diseases sprouting from that. Anyway, um, so his suggestion, he didn't try to coerce me on anything, but he said, you know, you come to see me, you know my belief. That tooth, for me, I would extract it right away. So I came home and had to deal with some of these, you know, beliefs that I shared with you, fears of starting to extract my teeth and et cetera. So I did a little bit of research on, on um, implants and where I wanted to go with this. Do I redo the root canal, save it at all costs, or should I go ahead and extract? Um, haven't done it anything to today, so it's been a year. Um, let's see here. Uh, what else on that? Um, I had, on a tooth 14, which is the other canal tooth, back in 2014, I had major bleeding around that tooth. So um, there is gum disease. I, I'm having gum problems for the past decade. I've had gum issues. 
So um, when they do that probing, when I do uh, teeth cleaning, they do the probing. There's a lot of bleeding that happens, especially on my wisdom teeth, all the back teeth. Um, so uh, the gum pockets bleed a lot back there. So they started to recommend for my gum health to do a water pick, and they suggested a um, a wash. Uh, an organic something and on oil, but there was a lot of essential oils in it, but I started, used it, and I didn't want to continue because of the essential oils. So I got onto Yarrow because I learned from you. It helped. So last year I started on the Yarrow, and then I went back, uh, 2017 I started on the Yarrow, and then last year I went back and uh, they said, yeah, your gums, you know, they did the probing. The reading was a lot better, but I'm still not out of the woods. So <clears throat> uh, the dentist offered me the teeth replacement. Um, I was looking at implants, but I haven't really done a whole lot of research yet. So I wanted to get your opinion on that. A zirconia versus, um, I forget, I think it's a metal. Um, um, and I'm jumping here. Yeah, titanium. Um, also, okay, so we talked about gum health a little bit. Um, it's been an issue. Systemic infections, I really want to talk about that because I've had these root canals. Um, the number 19 on the lower jaw, at least I had them done, to, had it done in 06. The first try was January of 06, and apparently it wasn't well done. I went back to my dentist, and he said, well, you need to redo this root canal. So I go back to the specialist. He redoes it two years later. So I've had that for that long, the 14 way longer. Um, now, since 04, I've been having systemic infections, mainly UTIs, um, Throat, um, I want to remind infection. you that I usually keep my talks to about 15 minutes. Okay. And it's All okay right. if you want to use the whole 15 minutes, but it means I don't get a chance to say anything. Okay. Okay, I'm going to shorten and just give you this. Systemic infections, UTI since 04, on a lot of antibiotics since then, sometimes two to four, up to four infections a year. Um, I grew some resistance to antibiotics. Finally, um, and these infections will come mostly post-intercourse, but not always. Um, and then as of last, the last year and a half, um, I've been having joint pains, okay? And they started on my hip, left hip, left knee, left shoulder, and they're just increasing. Everything's happening on my left side where these canal teeth are. Finally, as I speak to you, I'm on antibiotics for strep throat, and only on my left side. It didn't affect my whole throat, just on that left side. So I wanted to get your wisdom on um, extraction versus just uh, redoing a root canal. And then if implants or nothing, you know, with the teeth shifting, your thoughts on that. And whether these gum infections and systemic infections, uh, gum issues and systemic infections could be caused by, and the joint pains, by this canal teeth. Let me start by saying that I have seen more people's lives ruined by this kind of dentistry than by virtually anything else. I do not in any way agree 
with what you're calling a biological dentist. In fact, I consider most of them quacks. And a quack is somebody who puts their financial incentive ahead of your health. There is a very good reason to keep your teeth. There are very good reasons for root canals. No. In general, having a root canal does not in any way predispose you to any other kind of infection. Now, you may not agree with me, and you may decide that you really like this dentist and you're just going to go along with whatever the dentist wants you to do, and certainly that's your choice. I think that we're very clear here about what's needed, and that is, as with anything, um, we need somebody who is experienced and skilled to do it. If we went and had our car repaired, and it wasn't done by a very skilled person, it wasn't a very good repair, would we then trash the car? I wouldn't. Tooth replacement's expensive. Most people, especially if you have periodontal disease, means that some of your jawbone has been eaten away, which means that before they can even do an implant, they have to do a bone graft. And then you have to wait for the bone graft to heal. And then a a titanium um, screw is put in. And then your replacement tooth is screwed onto that. It doesn't really matter what material you get. It's a, not your tooth. It's not alive. There's as much room for infection in a tooth replacement and in a, a tooth extraction as there is room for infection in a root canal. So I don't join this fringe freakout about root canals. And I hadn't either, um, even though my choice of dentistry has been, you know, the aforementioned, but I never had symptoms. So it's just once this tooth became symptomatic and I started to um, connect some of these health issues, I thought maybe, maybe. I don't really, I'm not 100% into the whole mercury's bad and root canals are bad, but um it just made me think, okay. The reason that the to... sun comes up every morning is because birds sing. I can prove no. it to you. <laughs> I've never been anywhere that the birds didn't sing before the sun came up. Have you? Bird singing makes the sun come up, right? <laughs> no. Where the human brain falls flat on its face is cause and effect. This is why we do double blind studies. You are tripping yourself up here. Okay. You're getting urinary tract infections because of what's going on with intercourse. And if I was in that situation, 
I would be taking Uva Ursi, and bef- it, you know, if I was in a regular um, sexual relationship, I would be taking Uva Ursi probably on a fairly regular basis to help ward off any bladder infection. I certainly would never take antibiotics if I had a bladder infection. I would prefer yarrow tincture. I would prefer echinacea tincture. Mm-hmm. Periodontal disease means that there is a buildup of tartar below the gum line. Think of a boat with barnacles on it under the water line, right? Mm-hmm. You can't get to that with brushing, and they don't get to that with regular cleaning. If you truly have periodontal disease, scaling is what you need to do. And that gets under the gum, and it gets rid of all those barnacles. And it's that scale, that barnac- those barnacles, that buildup that's causing the infections in your mouth. The root canals were originally done because there were abscesses and infections there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not just because somebody wanted to do it, but because you were in pain. And antibiotics yeah. don't get into those areas very well. So you can't just take an antibiotic and make it go away. You really have to get in there and dig that infection out. And if there's not adequate home care and there continues to be periodontal disease, and then it's not uncommon for there to be more infections in the area where the root canals were, as well as more infections in other places in the mouth. Yarrow is a wonderful ally. I use it instead of toothpaste. I use it instead of mouthwash. And that's yarrow tincture. I just keep a bottle of yarrow tincture in the bathroom. And then we were talking about yarrow, which would be yarrow tea, to help deal with bladder infections, or some yarrow tincture can help deal with bladder infections as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sounds like you and Madam Yarrow need to sit down and have a talk. Oh, we have, and she's been wonderful. And, in fact, I'm going to call next week just to share a success story because I was able to really uh, manage my UTIs, and I never had to have another one once I learned about your protocol and the herbs and everything. It's been an extremely successful story, so I just want other women to hear it. Yes, it's so wonderful, isn't it? Because the, the herbs really clear those infections and the antibiotics don't. They really do, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, I look, and, um, look yeah. forward to hearing Corn from you tea. next week. What fun. Thank okay. you so much for your call. I hope I've been not too confusing. No, you've been wonderful, and I so respect your insights. So um, you are my teacher, and I love you very much. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. Green blessings. Good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Our next caller is 775. Oh, shit, this is me. 775 is you? Uh, hi, can you hear me? Yes, hi. Hi, um, I didn't think I'd get to be on this. So I had a question 
about my daughter. So um, she is 17 months old, and she has eczema. Well, and she's just always really itchy. And this has been going on for, like, about a year. Like, it started getting worse when she was, like, seven months old. And um, I feel like it's gotten a little better recently. And I like to credit partially. I've been drinking a lot more herbal infusions lately. Um, My mom makes them, and I feel like that might be helping. But anyway, so um, I, I guess I have a couple of questions. One would be, what herbal infusions might be best for me to be drinking? And if there's any other general, like, eczema, you know, advice you have. And mm-hmm. also, she's, she she spilled some hot tea on her, like, a little over a week ago, and she got a second-degree burn on her, and we got it all taken care of. She's all healed up. And so if you have any advice about, you know, scarring and stuff like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I believe that the five herbal infusions that we rotate through are the best for everyone. Stinging nettle, oat straw, red clover, linden, and comfrey leaf. Okay, those are the ones we've been drinking. Excellent. Each one gives you its unique benefits, and together they make a wonderful symphony. Comfrey, of course, is especially known for helping the skin. Okay, well, because I, I looked on your so the, website. The skin defines really where we end, doesn't it? The skin is like my outline around me, huh? And yeah. so when the skin is broken, it could be because I feel like my skin is too tight and I have to break out. Or it could be because I feel that the world is too rough and it's rubbing holes in me. When we're dealing with a child, then we can kind of look and see, you know, how does this child meet the world? Is this this the kind of child who pulls back from the world, who's a little bit afraid of the world, who likes to hide behind mommy when she meets something new? Right, or is this a child who is just busting out, busting with energy, banging herself into things, flying around? I feel like she could almost be both of those things. Um, we could like all right be now, both of those things, obviously. Yeah, like right now, she just woke up and she she gets so itchy right when she wakes up. Mm-hmm. And like it's. I heard a I'm asking not... more about general personality, not about itchy or time or anything oh. like that. Because usually you don't have a child who both hides behind mommy and runs headlong into danger. Yeah. Let me let me let me try and consider this. She's she's pretty brave. She's pretty brave. She she like like we had to wrap her up for her burn for like a week and we finally got to take the wrapping off of her. And she was just literally running around doing barrel rolls. But, like, I was in the forest with her today, and she was, like, holding my hand before she went anywhere. Mm-hmm. So she's mm-hmm. pretty adventurous, pretty brave, but So let's tentatively say that what's happening is that there's a disruption at her skin because she 
has a need to put herself out. She needs to get out of her body. So she's just kind of busting out, like you were saying. Exactly. So what do I do about that? Work with it instead of against it. So looking at it and saying, oh, poor baby, this is so terrible. You look at it and you say, wow, you're itching. Itching is a kind of energy. You have a lot of natural energy. Let's see if we can figure out some ways to direct this energy so that it doesn't itch you. Okay. And, you know, that does seem like the best best defense against her itchiness is to get her busy with something. And really focus in on the fact that that itchiness is chi, it's energy, it's life force, it's good, we want it. We just don't want it bothering us. Yeah. And she seems so happy when she itches. She's got this like little sly little smile about it. And she, and then, you know, it breaks my <laughs> heart. Good. She's like, oh. yeah. She's just like, she. I can rarely let her run around without like pants on. It's, it's, I just, I wish I could just have her in a little dress. And, and then I, I get all these emotions about it, which I know don't, doesn't help her. And it's like at, at a certain point, I think it bothers me more than it bothers her, but. The real problem is if she scratches too long, she'll bleed, and I don't want that. Mm-hmm. Have you taught her to scratch with a cloth rather than her fingers? Um, I don't know how I would do that, really. She's, you know, 17 months, but she's starting to take direction a little bit. Um, sometimes I put scratch leaves on her so it covers her hand with silk. And when she has those on, she doesn't scratch as much. Mm-hmm. 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 But then she'll, like, the, the phrase you use is very what appropriate. What I find is that children are great leaves. mimics. Mm-hmm. And that if I say, oh, I just got a mosquito bite, and I rub it rather than scratch it, the, the children will mimic me. Yeah. I don't even have to and try to... Should- teach them anything in particular. I just have to do it and point it out and talk about it and say, oh, I'm going to rub this mosquito bite. I don't want to scratch it because if I scratch it, I could break my skin, and I don't want to do that, so I'll rub it. Yeah. Hmm? And they're, you know, explorers. They like to explore various things. Plantain, of course, is your anti-itch herb. And if you have some plantain oil, you might make a ritual in the morning when she wakes up of applying some plantain oil to any areas that are itchy. Plantain oil, okay. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, right now I, I've been putting, I, I give her a bath with um, baking soda and coconut oil in her bath and then, the burn doctors have me putting aquaphor on her. Just is basically petroleum jelly. Not nearly as good as real aloe vera. 
Yeah, you think aloe vera would be good? Just like pure? I had a woman come to me. She was cooking at a summer camp. And someone had left the gas on in the oven. Pilot wasn't on. So when she went to light the oven that morning to cook for the camp, it blew up. She was holding the match between her forefinger and her thumb of her right hand, and the gas blew across her hand and kind of burned out that part between her thumb and her forefinger, almost to the bone. She wrapped it up with ice, cooked breakfast, and then came over to my house and said, what should I do? I said, when should go out and buy every aloe vera plant in the county? <laughs> and you cut open the leaf, and you scrape the gel out, and you put the gel on the burn. And as soon as the burn starts to hurt, you replace the gel with fresh gel. I said, initially, that might be every 30 seconds that you're replacing it. But you have to do it over and over and over again. Eventually, the times will lengthen. She came back a year later and showed me her hand, and the muscle had entirely regrown. She didn't even have to have plastic surgery because she used aloe. Wow. As far as I'm concerned, petroleum jelly is about the same as putting plastic wrap on the burn. Yeah. In other words, all it's doing is holding moisture in, which is important. But aloe vera holds moisture in and brings healing aid to it. And if you don't have aloe vera and you don't have access to aloe vera, honey is not even second best. It's as good as aloe vera and far better than anything the medical establishment can offer. Okay. And, you know, these doctors are really accommodating. They told me if I knew something better for moisturizing, to go ahead and use it. Good for them. Good for them. Yeah, petroleum jelly really is wonderful. Not children great. Talk we went to, and that's yeah. just what they provided me with. You know, mm-hmm. they have to provide something. Again, let me um, be clear. I am not talking about aloe vera that you buy at a drugstore or a health food store. I'm talking about the actual plant. Okay. Well. So that would be good for a burn. And you think with her itchiness, plantain oil. I know we have some around here. Um, good. I think we actually got it from Rebecca. Great. Um, but do you think that would be good and just to kind of encourage her to? I do. And I'm going to say green blessings since I can fit in one more person before we talk to Lisa Butcher. Thank you so okay, much for your so much. green blessings. Good night. Bye. Yeah. We have another caller? We do. Lisa Good. Boucher will be joining us in five minutes, Susan. Yep. And currently we have 240 with a question. Hi, that's me. Hey. <laughs> Thank you for taking my call. I didn't think I'd get in. Um. Hi, Susan. I have a question um, about St. Joan's work that I've been um, taking these days. Um, and I was I was wondering about not just the, ener- the energy of it, but like, but also the spirit side of St. Joan's work. I um, I've noticed 
I, I took a break because I was feeling very sleepy and sometimes almost hung over the next day, like groggy. Mm-hmm. And, but and then what, sometimes what, I, what form are you taking St. John's work? Um, in tincture form. Okay. And, I did, um, and it's tincture I started, that you made? I didn't make it. I actually bought it from mm-hmm. I actually bought from the fresh plant. From fresh plant, yes. Fresh plant. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, and um I, I'm I, I I do not distrust your experience, but I distrust mm-hmm. the belief that it has anything to do with hypericum. Okay. So yeah, so I would get You're taking how much? Um, I was doing two droppers, but then I'm backed up to two dropperfuls a day is a very low dose. Oh, it's low. Okay. Very, very low dose. Okay. I know people who take as much as a dropperful hourly. Oh, okay. So that wasn't much. Because I ca- I felt that, but then I also felt like good and like just like a nice feeling good like yeah so then Mm -hmm. I noticed I don't know if it was giving me sleep because I needed it because I started giving it to my dad and he's he's telling me it's helping him sleep but he's an insomniac so so I'm just wondering like can this kind of go back and forth between giving you sleep or waking you up? Herbs are not drugs. A drug is a single purified molecule that has a direction of action. If I give you a drug to make you go to sleep, it makes you go to sleep. Herbs are not drugs. Herbs are not single molecules. They are combinations of hundreds of different constituents. A drug has a direction of action. It makes you go to sleep. End of discussion. Herbs have a sphere of action. So, of course, it can help you sleep. It can help you be more alert. Both of those Absolutely within the power of that herb. Okay. Although the sleep is a secondary thing, and it comes about because one of the primary effects that hypericum has is on the nervous system. And it helps to relieve nervous tension as well as muscular tension, which Mm. leads to better sleep. But it's not because hypericum is a soporific or an herb that makes you sleep. Yeah, yeah, I can see that because I felt it did, I did feel like relaxed physically and mentally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then um, I have one more question quickly. Um. But we I don't have, have time for it. Show. Oh, we don't? Okay. No, we don't. Oh. I'm so sorry. Lisa is here, and I'm going to introduce her. I'm so glad we got to talk. Green blessings. Good day. I am so happy to have Lisa Butcher here. She, you know, trained polo horses, and then she worked as a fire at, flight attendant. 
and then she was a hairdresser, and then she was a bartender. And then she said, all right, let me just settle in, and I'll be a registered nurse. So for the past 28 years, she has been working with women to overcome alcoholism, live better lives, and become better parents. Raising the Bottom is her fifth book. She was prompted to write it when she realized, after 20-plus years of working in hospitals, that doctors and she says traditional healthcare, but of course what I do is traditional healthcare, and what modern medicine does is not traditional at all. Um, so I'm going to say modern healthcare offers few solutions to women with addiction issues. Lisa Butcher is the mother of twin sons, and she lives in Ohio with her husband. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thanks for sending me Thank your book. You. I've been reading it and really benefiting from it. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. And may I correct you on my last name? It's Boucher. Boucher, thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Lisa Boucher. Yeah, you know, personally, um, it's always been an issue for me uh, because my body does not tolerate alcohol. Oh, well, you might be one of the lucky ones then. Yeah, half a glass of wine. Go down that path. Right, half a glass of wine, I feel like I've been run over by a car, and then the next day I feel like I've been run over by a train. It's just not worth it. Wow. Well, you might you might be one of the lucky ones then, Susan, because for so many of us, it doesn't stop there. You know, it would be nice to maybe just have a drink or two and then be done. But for many of us, millions of us, actually, that's not how it goes. So, that's not how it goes. You know, I lived on the property of a woman who only ever drank a glass of wine a day. And I was so oblivious to what was going on that I did not notice the dozens of gallon wine jugs, empty gallon wine jugs on her porch, and that her glass was never empty. <laughs> she had the ongoing continual glass, but just one, right, because she never That's washed right. It, she only so. had one glass of wine a day, but it, it constituted, you know, a, a lot of wine. Right, right. right. Oh. And and so I did not realize I was dealing with an alcoholic, and I was the golden girl until I was, you know, the damned spot. Oh. Which is always going to happen when you're dealing with an alcoholic. Right. Um, so she had well, to eliminate me. It was it was pretty crushing because I had built my house on her property. Well, I mean, I don't know. Is it because she was an alcoholic or is it because it, it, it muddles the thinking? And I think people, when they're that into their disease, they make really poor choices. And it's really mm. hard to see reality for what reality is. So mm-hmm. and that's why it causes so many problems in families and in relationships and things like that. I mean, when if you understand that alcohol is shutting down the prefrontal cortex, the computer, our rational, higher mind. So, I mean, it explains uh, so much, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. It, now, yeah, when, it at the beginning of the show, I don't know if you heard me, I said that, um, that I gave the listeners, I said that your book is called Raising the Bottom. I'll give you a, you know, a, you know, a minute to imagine what that could be. Is it about dancers who want to have, you know, bouncier bottoms? Is it about people who are building ponds and they want the bottom of the pond to be? Because I said, no, what I understand is that in Alcoholics Anonymous, they say you don't stop drinking until you hit bottom. And what Lisa's suggesting is that we bring the bottom up, that we raise the bottom, that we shouldn't have to go so far down to hit the bottom. Did I get that wrong or did I you, get that 
Right. No, you got that right. That's exactly it, Susan, because I think here's what the problem is. Out there in society, the general lexicon is, oh, nobody is going to get sober till they hit a bottom, and people have in their mind that these bottoms have to be devastating, and it really is the person who can no longer function at all in their life, and everything is destroyed, and it doesn't have to get that way. If we start talking like this, and as a culture, and as a society, and start really looking at what is abnormal drinker drinking? I mean, I think we should start there and say, people, this is what one of my pet peeves, because I, I don't even want to call it a pet peeve, but it's like this is where the trouble can begin. Let's put it that way. So people that are drinking five to seven nights a week, but yet they insist they're social drinkers. So I'm going to say, unless you're really having just one or two, which nine out of 10 people are having more than that, you're not really a social drinker. You're someone who maybe is physically dependent at the very least. So we need to start really looking at it for what it is. Normal social drinkers, what does that look like? Okay, in my opinion, that is someone who has an occasion and they drink. They might even get drunk once or twice a year at Christmas or at a wedding or, you know, some other event that they drank a little too much. But it's not someone. So this is my glass of champagne to celebrate. Well, exactly. I mean, that's social drinking. But now people that drink five and seven times a week say, I'm a social drinker. No, you're getting alcohol dependent. I mean, when your whole social life revolves around alcohol, when you won't go anywhere, alcohol is served, when it's the thing on your mind, oh, I can't wait to have a drink, oh, are we going to have drinks, when that is your focus, you're, you're not really a social drinker anymore. So I think we need to start there and redefining for our culture, our society, what is social drinking. When you're a parent and you're a wine glass is your appendage and your kid is drawing pictures of mommy with a wine glass, I'm sorry, you're not a social drinker. You're just, you're bringing a lot of grief and distress already to your small children. So this is where we can start looking at it and stop. And that's what I'm talking about, raising the bottom. That is someone who is who is going, if your children are drawing pictures of mommy holding a wine glass, your children are in distress, and your drinking is only going to get worse if you don't stop. So why don't we start saying, you know what, why don't people look at it when it's in that stage before everything is falling apart. It's just, it's a lot harder. And, you know, I work with so many women, some are young and some are older, and it's very difficult. It's much harder to put your life back together when you're 58 than when you're 28 or even 38, even 48. But every decade you drink, the physical ramifications can add up, the consequences, whether it be financial, health-wise. I mean, it doesn't have to be devastating consequences. I mean, but a lot of times people minimize, you know, they're on their third marriage, their children have been dragged through three marriages, and we're still justifying going, well, I didn't really harm anybody. Well, yeah, you kind of did. So, what if, you know, we start saying, well, maybe 
The drinking doesn't have to get to where you're at these low bottoms. But, you know, life changes when you sober up, Susan. It just does. Our thinking changes. The choices we make changes. I'm very grateful I sobered up before I became a mom because I think I saved my sons a lot of grief that I'm sure I would have brought upon them with my alcoholic behavior. Now, you're talking about alcoholic behavior, and I know that kind of the holy grail of Alcoholics Anonymous is that when you sober, sober up, you cannot even have one drink. Well, is that what that you're talking about? correct. Yes, that is correct. It's abstinence. You stop drinking entirely. Well, yes. You, you, ha- you almost have to. If you're really an alcoholic, you really don't have any other choice because I have yet – to me, and I've been sober 30 years, and I've been working in healthcare now about, yeah, 28 years or whatever. So, a very long time looking at a lot of different people's situations. I have yet to find anyone who was a real alcoholic who could dabble again, you know, have a period of sobriety, and then dabble and just have a drink now and then. It never works because it's like you click the disease back on and they're off like a rocket. So, and how do I know this? I know this from sitting in meetings for 30 years and listening to people who went back out thinking they could have a drink or two after some, you know, long-term sobriety, 12 years, 14 years, 20 years, and they realized, no, they couldn't because the disease continues to march on even when we're sober. So if I went out and had a drink tonight, it would be like I never had 30 years of sobriety. So would I be falling down drunk tomorrow? Probably not, but maybe within a couple of weeks, I would be where I was when I quit. And I think I quit at a place where I was ready to fall off a precipice. So um, no, we can no, We know, Lisa, that it doesn't work to tell people you have to give this up because people feel deprived of all kinds of bad behavior. So we have to offer them something else instead, right? Right. So what you're offering instead is peace of mind, loving yourself again, making good choices, um, being happy where you don't need to have, not being hungover, waking up feeling I, good. I, I know, but don't most, people, don't most people drink because they feel socially awkward? Isn't that what they really mean about by being a social drinker, is that they're drinking because they get freaked out around other people and the alcohol removes some of their inhibitions? Well, I think that's true. Take the word social out. I mean, that's why I think alcohol is prevalent in social situations because it is a social lubricant. I mean, nobody's going to deny that. But if you get to where you can't walk into a room without a couple drinks under your belly, well, then that kind of tells me, okay, why, number one, you're either way too self-centered and you think everybody's looking at you when really they're not, number one, or two, the insecurity and the anxiety and that, a lot of that's in our head. You know, we think people are focused on what we're doing or what we're going to say or we're afraid to, you know, sound stupid or whatever. But most people are so involved in their own stuff anyway, right? 
Well, I had a teacher who gave me an exercise to get over this, and this exercise, this is a real exercise that I did, was that I had to go to Grand Central Station and take my clothes off and put on a different outfit. Oh. Oh, in the middle of the station? In the middle of Grand Central Station. Oh. And did it work? Of course. Nobody paid any attention to me at all. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. But you did say you were in New York. Grand Central right. Station. In New York. Well, right. But I'm saying there's so many Same. people there. Now, if you were in little Midtown, Ohio, like I am, that you might get a different response. Indeed. So, Indeed, you right, would get Right, right, yeah. I mean, in New York City, Grand Central Point. Station, you can be all kinds of weird, and no one's going to bat an eye, right? point she was making was, get over it, Susan, you're not the center. Right. Of the- no, People I get her point, and, and you're right, and that is it. Because I think, you know, they say alcoholism, we have this hole in the soul. So, Susan, we're like filling ourselves up with something to feel okay, and it ends up being alcohol or drugs or some people go to relationships or sex or um, food. I mean, it's all kind of like the same ball of yarn. It doesn't matter, you know, some people say, well, somebody just asked me yesterday on Twitter, um, well, I was a drug addict, so, and you you say you deal in alcoholism, well, are they different diseases? And I'm like, no, same ball of yarn, you just chose to use more drugs than maybe I did, you know, I used a little bit of drugs, but more with alcohol, so... It's just a matter, or food addicts, many of they say 89% of women that have bariatric surgery end up being alcoholics because their, their obsession or their addiction was food, and when that was changed, they switched to alcohol. So it all comes down to what feelings are we not dealing with, what emotions are we masking with our shopping vice, our men or women vice, our whatever. This is what we do when we're not fully whole. And Alcoholics Anonymous, it is a spiritual program. People, I know there's so much controversy about this and it drives me crazy because they say, oh, it's religious and I can't do it and I'm an atheist. And that's BS. I say, stop it. It is not a religious program, okay? Um and I know there's people that get sober other ways, refuge recovery or smart recovery or whatever the case may be. But any good recovery program is going to help the person work through their emotions, many of which go back to childhood trauma. We cannot discuss alcoholism without at least acknowledging that is a huge piece for many, many, many people. Trauma. Childhood trauma. But also peer pressure. As you said, I was one of the lucky ones because my body couldn't tolerate it. But why was I even messing around drinking anyhow? Because of peer pressure, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I started drinking as a teenager. So many people that um, I know do. Because you're right. It's peer pressure. You, when you're a kid, you don't have any. You, well, and here's the other thing. What are, what are the adults role model? Most of the time, I mean, I had saw a thing where people were complaining, parents were complaining, they're piled in at this place where their kids are in strollers, but it's like, it looked like kind of a beer garden, like a microbrewery or something, and they were complaining there wasn't enough room to have their strollers and all their garb, baby garb, and I'm like, 
uh, you just want to, it's just so sad. I mean, this is where we are, where people, we've lowered the bar. So when you have a child that this is where they're raised, basically in a sports bar or a microbrewery where there's strollers or here, so mom and dad could sit around and drink, my God, how are they not going to want to experiment with alcohol when they're 12 and 13 years old? So there's this disconnect between parents saying, oh, I want, you know, I want to raise this great kid and I'm going to send them to the best schools and I'm going to do this, that, and the other, and then all they do is drink in front of them. So all that money, you might as well just flush it down the drain because when you have a teenage alcoholic on your hands at 14 and 15 because there's so much booze around them, you know, you'll be lucky if they go to college or even get into a a, a technical school for crying out loud. So we have to like really dial it back and say, what am I role modeling? What am I showing? What are we doing with this alcohol that is front and center between the wine memes and the, you know, you just can't turn anywhere anymore, Susan, where it's not booze in your face. And for those people who can do it normally, fine, but I do think we have to look at the messaging that we're, we're showing the younger generation instead of teaching them coping skills. Um, we're laughing about, well, mommy needs wine. Dad needs to go get beers or whatever. I mean, how is that going to help them navigate life? I mean, when do we start having a serious social conversation and start pushing back to some of the nonsense because it's not, helping. I mean, I know it's all lighthearted and it's good fun and it doesn't hurt anybody when you're an adult and you can handle it, but we cannot forget the world is not made up of just adults. There's a lot of children and young people and young adults. Who do they have to look up to that's not drowning themselves in pills and alcohol? So by raising the bottom we say, let's not have this be so culturally acceptable. Yeah, yeah, let's dial it back. Like, what you know, my mom was an alcoholic, so I grew up in... But we can't really dial it. We just have to eliminate it. Well, it's not you know, like I, that's never going to happen. There's too much money to be made. I mean, let's look at, like, the coronavirus. What the heck is going on now? The liquor stores are open. So I, I can really... Like, I could not yeah. that when somebody told me... Well, they are, Susan. So I'm, I'm, I can't... I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, and I'm going to say, here's what the... With the compassionate thing would be with to say, okay, well, they kept him open for the people. They don't want him to go into DTs and have to go to the hospitals. Now, we know that's probably not true because there's so much tax revenue on alcohol. Are you kidding me? These states aren't going to quit selling it. No how, no way. And that's why, I mean, I walked into the gas station the other day, and there was the biggest roundest display right in my face of all this wine in the gas station for crying out loud. That's new. It didn't used to be that way. I mean, they used to always have beer or whatever in the coolers, but now everything is just like right in your face. And this is what our kids are bombarded with from the time, you know, you have a 16 year old driving. Now he or she walks into a gas station and this is what they see for the next what rest of their life. 
alcohol, alcohol, alcohol. It's just everywhere. So I think we can dial it back that way as a society. Why does it have to be front and center? And like I was saying with my mom, she wasn't sitting around drinking. I think there was a part of her knew how abnormal her drinking was. So I have to give her kudos. At least she she was sneaking it, you know, I mean, as far as she was still trying to set somewhat of an example, I think, is what I believe she was doing, that she was uncomfortable in the middle of the day sitting there with a bottle. So, you know, she still was getting drunk, don't get me wrong, but, you know, it just wasn't acceptable. Where now, I mean, we've lowered the bar so much where people, women are going on play dates, or you see couples in the park with their red solo cups pushing the stroller. Like, what? what? And then they're getting in the car and you're going to drive the baby home when, you know, you might not be smashed, but you're tipsy. When When is it okay to right. combine infants, toddlers, and alcohol? It's a disaster. Just as a historical note, throughout most of human history, water has been unsafe to drink. And I didn't know, know that. Yeah. You could get very, very bad diseases from drinking water. Well, I guess, but even way back. I, I mean, we're going way back, though. Way back, way, way back. Well, I mean, back at and the time of the American Indians, they were fine. What we have Drinking out of the creek. No, right. They, it's in, only when industrialization came, I think, that we screwed everything up. That suddenly it became something other than. But historically, people have drunk wine and beer as their primary safe-to-drink beverage. I remember sitting early one morning, 5.30, 6 o'clock a.m., in a German train station, and this old woman came in and ordered a beer. And I, of course, looked at her, and she looked back at me, and she said, this is a healthy breakfast. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, everyone loves to say, too, well, Europe, people over in Italy and France and Spain, they do it right, and they bring their kids up so they don't have all this alcoholism. That is a baloney. They actually have some of the highest alcoholism rates in the world is Europe. So even drinking and, you know, at home with your kid and all that, and teaching them how, the reality is kids that have their first drink before they're 15 are more than, or I'm sorry, later, like 17 or 19, are four times more likely to become alcoholic. And that makes perfect sense to me. Most alcoholics that I know, we all started drinking young. Now, there's the weird ones that, you know, I do know some he that does. didn't start drinking until they were 30 or whatever, but I'm confused the about younger you, you drink. Are you I'm saying, sorry? I'm confused. Are you saying that if you drink okay. any alcohol until you're 17 or 18, then you're four times more likely to be an alcoholic? I'm saying if you drink when you're young before you're in your late teens, you are four times more likely to become alcoholic. Yes. All right. So so if you have if alcohol is part of your family life, which is what you're saying, then right. that, right. that is going to be make it more likely for you to be an alcoholic. Right. Well I'm also talking about kids that are twelve and thirteen like I was and you're stealing beer and you're starting to drink at that young age. Now, you're not drinking every day, but that's still indicative of you probably, or you always hear like um, the friends that say, oh, yeah, my kid, when they were 
14, they drank a whole bottle of something. Um, they found it, and we found them passed out in the closet or whatever, something like that. Well, fast forward 10 years, most of those kids have alcohol problems. Caught up with them. And it's Did a I lose you? Oh, it's there a you problem are. for all of us. It's not just a problem for them. Well, it's a whole societal problem. I mean, think of the the billions, I mean, billions and billions of dollars to society in lost productivity, in drunk driving accidents, in um, industrial accidents, in, you know, it, the mayhem goes on and on and on. Families that are broken up and the mental health issues that come, you know, with all of that baggage, domestic violence. I mean, a lot of that is because of alcohol and or drugs. Yes. So the, the price I, to a society lot is, is high. Like when you were talking I'm sorry. about in indigenous populations, like you were talking about the Native Americans, both in Australia and in North America and Canada, alcohol um, really ruined those people's lives because there were no coping mechanisms at all. Right. Um, right. You know, Slavic people, European people, a lot of people, African people, have coping mechanisms for dealing with alcohol because it's part of their cultures. Mm-hmm. Well, I think alcoholism is, it becomes the solution the alcohol does instead of healthy coping mechanisms. So, that's what I learned in sobriety was how to manage my emotions, how to get through life without turning to a substance to make me feel better and to make it go away. I mean, I don't really have the desire to check out of life anymore. I mean, there were those rare occasions where I was like, oh, God, I wish I could just go away and have some drinks and forget about all this. But the reality is whatever it is you're trying to drink over is there the next day so the healthy thing to do is we learn to cope and deal with the things in our lives and I will tell you this for most people when they stop drinking their problems are cut in a fraction of what they were because most of the problems are from the alcoholism and not dealing with life. Lisa I I'm so enjoying talking to you that I have um, not done my part, which earlier I should have asked you to tell people how they can get in touch with you. So let's do that now before we're out of time. Oh, okay. Raisingthebottom.com, my website, El Goucher author on Twitter, and Raising the Bottom um, on Facebook. So, And I think it's El Boucher author on Instagram as well. El Boucher author. And raising the bottom dot com. Um, you're yes. still books out to people, yes? I'm sorry. People can get your book directly from you. Um, no, well, I mean, if you're local, I have some that I can sell. But most people just go to Amazon or where books are sold That's online. True. Any retailer can they, get it if they don't have it. So yeah, yeah. where online is probably the best bet. Amazon is delivering food and medical supplies. They're not delivering books. What? No, they are. I just bought two books, and they showed up they at my have, door today. 
have in stock they'll send, but they I know because Amazon makes big orders from me, and Amazon has not ordered from me in over a month. Wow, wow. Well, I think if they've got them in stock, I, they will send it. Um, I know. Well, they can also go to like Barnes & Noble or um, Target, Walmart. I think any of those can get the book for them. Yeah. Very difficult to get books right now. Book sales are down about 80%. Wow. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Bookstores have been closed. Right? Well, I know that, but I do know, oh. like I said, the two books that I ordered today yeah, for my daughter-in-law and for my that's, other son's and, girlfriend, they showed up. Okay. I was asking if people could get the book directly from you, and the answer, the short answer is no. But when things go back to normal, because they will at least go back to some version of normal. Um, right. Get pet, uh, raising the bottom at all of those normal places, and we have come to the last minute of the show. And usually, I say, "What do you want to leave in the hearts and minds of all of the listeners?" But you have a question here that I'm going to ask you instead, which is, "What single piece of encouragement do you have for the listeners?" Well, I just want to encourage everyone who is listening to if you think for even one minute that you might have a problem with alcohol, start, you know, researching it and opening your mind with a vengeance. Because I just want to say this, I've never met one person who has regretted getting sober. But I have talked to many, many, many people who regret that they didn't. And so I just want to encourage them, like, it is a whole new life. It's a great life. It's not this big, scary world of, like, oh, I'm not going to have any fun. Because, really, my life really began in such a different way. Like, you find your gifts and your talents and what you like and what you don't like. All of that is in sobriety. So I just want to leave people that it's not something to be feared or that it's horrible or boring or anything like that. It really opens up life in such a big way. And this is a beautiful time because, you know, there's so many podcasts, blog talk radio, like we're doing now. There's Facebook pages. There's all sorts of information out there for people who might be concerned about their drinking. And I want to say, if you have the least bit of concern then you probably have a problem because if normal social drinkers don't sit around going, oh, God, am I drinking too much, right? So if you think you have a problem or you're worried at all, then say just try to have the courage to face it and do something about it. There's no shame, no shame at all. It's just the only shame is knowing you have a problem and not doing something about it. And when people say, oh, well, I feel, you know, so anxious socially, I say, you know what? Human beings are the most dangerous animal on this planet. If you're not socially anxious, you're not alive. There you go, right? You're right. You're right. Uh, yeah, of course you're we're right. going to be anxious in social situations. There could be a killer among us, right? So <laughs> you're open and don't right. mess them up with alcohol. You're really anxious, right. don't drink. And then you'll be right. able Spot the problem sooner, right? Find some exactly. other way to um, get over that rapid breathing. Lisa Boucher, you are a treasure, a 
Jim, and oh, I am so thrilled that we got to have you on the show. I envision that we are reweaving the healing cloak of the ancients. Thank you. Oh, I hope so. Thank you, Susan, for having me. Glittering threads to this, and thank you, Catherine, for helping me restore herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine. Thank you, everybody listening. Love you, Justine. And hey, Rebecca, we love you, too. Green blessings to all. Good night. Good night, everyone.